welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And one of the preoccupations of this podcast, scratch that, one of my preoccupations is about what on earth happened to make the world change. I think that it's pretty clear that the world changed really drastically sometime between the 18th and the 19th centuries, and I'm pretty curious about what constitutes that change and what caused it, and pretty importantly, what caused it to be so unequal and so uneven. One of the big ways that people have identified and explained this change is through the concept of the Industrial Revolution. And right now, one of the big places that people have been studying the Industrial Revolution is in cotton. We've talked about this a couple times before. Cotton is a really good example of these processes because it's one of the first industries to industrialize, by which we mean it's one of the first industries that became mechanized. And it also required an international division of labor. Slaves picked cotton in the American South, or in Egypt, or in India, and then factory workers in Britain spun and wove it together. And this division of labor seems to really get at that international unevenness that is one of the big reasons why we want to explain what modernity is. Also, the products of this manufacturing process were not just consumed where they were made in Britain, they were also consumed internationally. And this gave everybody on Earth, or a lot of people on Earth, cheaper clothes. But at the same time, it also destroyed a lot of local weaving and spinning industries. Because of this, the growth of the cotton industry has for a long time served as a potent symbol of the Industrial Revolution and of capitalism. And because of this, people have argued about what exactly is happening in the cotton industry. For some, they use the cotton industry to explain why the third world is poor. Uh, Because, for example, the third world was shunted out of the easily accessible industrialization processes and forced to become primary products producers. Instead of gaining factories, which would develop their industrial and engineering might, instead the third world became one vast plantation to just make cotton to fuel the factories of the industrial world. Other scholars use the story of cotton to explain why capitalism is always uneven, why it always comes with these vast global inequalities where some people make and other people consume. But even though the story of cotton has been really useful, and I will use it in my own exams and my own teaching, I want to argue in this episode that cotton's actually not a good representative of what is happening when we talk about the Industrial Revolution. When people argue about the particular things that go into cotton, whether cotton was actually, you know, coal powered or machinery powered or labor powered, they are missing the point because cotton, even though it was really important and really dramatic, is not the Industrial Revolution. In this episode, I'm going to argue that when we want to look at what really matters in the Industrial Revolution, we should look at something equally as boring and equally as invisible. Infrastructure. 
By infrastructure, I mean all of the expensive material stuff that makes the economy run. All of those roads and bridges and train lines and uh, telegraph cables and telephone lines. All of that stuff we can mean by infrastructure. Arguments about infrastructure development are actually pretty politically salient right now. Um, one of the hallmarks of Donald Trump's kind of phantom economic plan is that he plans to spend a lot on infrastructure development. One big budget line, of course, is the wall, but then there's also proposed stuff about uh, road building and stuff like that. Uh, in Barack Obama's presidency, infrastructure was also subject to a lot of political controversy, not only because there was, you know, high profile bridge collapses, and not only because a lot of the economic stimulus went into, quote, shovel ready infrastructure projects, but also because of the wider disagreement about what Obama actually stood for. A lot of business people and capitalists argued that Obama was anti-business, and Obama himself said that he wasn't anti-business. What he wanted to point out was that when business people made money, they made money off of the backs of the social and political infrastructure that was already around. Do you remember that much-quoted soundbite where Obama told business leaders that, you know, they didn't build this, that everything that they make is, you know, on the back of the highway system and the schooling system and stuff like that? That boiled down to a discussion about the importance of infrastructure. So, there's a big reason why I think that looking at infrastructure is a lot more important than looking at cotton. Changes in cotton manufacture were dramatic, and they led to dramatic changes in the way that people grew cotton and the way that people made cotton. But they did not lead overwhelmingly to changes in the rest of the economy. You might say that they changed the price of labor in certain industries. You might say that they changed consumption patterns, but it was not incredibly dramatic. Infrastructure, on the other hand, changes everything. When you have a railroad, it alters prices of every single good that you could possibly get. It makes bulk goods, heavy items, much more easily consumable on national and larger markets. And if you want to think about this, I'm not going to convince you through like fine and fancy arguments. I'm just going to give one big fact. Cotton conquered the world, sure, but it conquered the world on the back of railroads and steamships. For cotton to be, you know, economical, it needed to be shipped cheaply, and for it to be shipped cheaply, you needed railways and steamships. Looking at infrastructure as well gives us a different perspective, which makes us focus on finance and government and energy far more than the look at cotton does. So, you know, the thing about infrastructure is that these developments were super expensive. A cotton mill only cost about 5,000 pounds, but these gigantic infrastructure projects cost, you know, tens if not hundreds of times that amount. Because of this, and because of the fact that they only paid off in the long run, they needed to be funded by big, complicated financial instruments, which made them a lot more susceptible to the giant pool of money, to financial capitalism. 
Also, because they were so big and so central to daily life, they were subject to a lot of political wrangling. They were incredibly important in what politics actually meant in the 19th century. Also, by looking at infrastructure, we see the importance of energy as a key driver of the Industrial Revolution rather than mechanical innovations. The reason why, you know, this transport infrastructure in particular was so life-changing was that it allowed people to use the stored-up energy and coal in new ways to move things a lot quicker. This takes a lot of that big triumphant narrative about the Industrial Revolution that you probably read in high school that talks about how it was all a bunch of British geniuses making really fantastic machines that changed the world, and it kind of demolishes that idea. The important thing, sure, the steam engine. That was really important, but the steam engine ran on coal. So, for the rest of the episode, I'm going to talk about two things. First, I'm going to discuss some of the big infrastructure projects of the 18th and 19th centuries and talk about how they had these kind of knock-on changes to the rest of the economy. Then, I'll talk about some of the causes of these changes and some of the conclusions that we can draw from looking at them. The first big infrastructure boom, and one that is often blamed or you know given credit for the Industrial Revolution, is the 18th century transport revolution. The two big modes of transport here were roads and canals. After uh, the British military started to build gigantic roads up to Scotland to pacify, you know, the grumpy, kilt-wearing Highland people who would not accept the Hanoverian kings as real kings, there was a lot of knowledge around about how to build good roads. And after the 1750s, there were tons of private road-building companies that got started called turnpike trusts. And these knit together the nation in one big national market, albeit one that was knit together with a ton of toll roads. Similarly, starting I think in 1764, there was the beginning of a canal building boom in which people started to make rivers a lot more navigable. Now just to give you guys some hard numbers about this, because of the thousand or so turnpike trusts, there were 20,000 miles of road in 18th century Britain, making it one of the most well-roaded places in Europe. And because of innovations in wagon design and road building and horse breeding, there was a lot of reductions in the cost of shipping. 40% reduction in freight charges from the beginning to the end of the century, 7.5% uh, reduction in passenger fares, and a 60% reduction in travel times. So these roads and canals were making inland transport a lot quicker and a lot more regular and a lot nicer and a lot cheaper. Why is this important? Well, this helps push down the cost of bulk goods, which allows certain kinds of industrial activity to become, you know, more economically feasible. The big one, of course, is coal. Coal is heavy and so it's expensive to ship. And when you get reductions in freight charges, it means that it becomes a lot more economical to start to use coal as inputs in industrial processes. It's because coal prices dropped due to transport changes that people could start to use coal in things like glass blowing and beer making and distilling and in pumping water. 
A second big infrastructure development is, well, the really big one. Roads and canals are nice, but they don't change the world. They're not of world historical importance. The big one is the railroad. For the railroad to exist, of course, you need the kind of energy-intensive, you know, cheap transport infrastructure that existed because of the roads and canals. To make a railroad, you need iron and you need trees and you need iron and trees and, you know, enough profusion that you can make railroads and train carriages and engines out of them, in addition, of course, to needing coal. To do that, then, you need to have cheap transport. But railroads revolutionized transport even more than the, you know, turnpike boom did. It pushes down prices everywhere. It opens up markets, making people being able to ship things incredibly more regularly, independent of weather, much quicker. You know, it's just a world changer. This creates huge markets and bulk goods. Uh, a good example is the change in the grain trade. Because shipping grain internationally became much cheaper and much more, you know, easy, people started to shift where they bought their grain from. In Britain, after the Corn Laws were repealed, people started to buy their grain not from, you know, good British grain producers, but instead from places like Canada and from places like Crimea that were just, you know, better at growing grain. I mean, it's these kinds of transportation improvements that allow, you know, our friend Craig's Argentinian uh, uh, cattle ranchers to ship their hides and their beef all the way over to Britain. It also allows new kind of warfare and public control. With the railways, you could send troops anywhere and you could send them incredibly quickly. This gave governments a really huge incentive to laden their countries with railways so that they could put down rebellions. And similarly, the railways made new cultures, not only by bringing everybody together, by allowing a lot of, you know, cheap and easy transportation, but they themselves created new cultural spaces. There was the trend of the railway novel, which we can consider like the, you know, 19th century version of the airport novel, a novel that you read when you were in the kind of weird liminal space of the railway. Similarly, there was the spread of tourism after this point. You know, in the 18th century, there were tourists, but they were rich tourists, and they went out for years to southern Italy to get drunk and learn Italian and keep a mistress and, you know, collect antiques. In the 19th century, travel through the railway becomes something that's within the reach of everybody. Middle-class people can go off to wonderful, sublime places like the Lake District, and working-class people even as well can go off on holidays to the seaside. I mean, we can talk about railways for an entire week or more and not run out of stuff to talk about, but I just want to emphasize the big point here. The spread of the railway changed the rest of everyday life. The spread of the railway allowed new kinds of production, often that ran on coal, and it allowed new kinds of trade through the expansion of markets. Furthermore, it also created new kinds of culture, not only through, you know, increasing the speed at which people could move through space, but in making its own space. 
Similarly, we have the advance of the other, you know, big infrastructure evolution of the 19th century, the telegraph. The telegraph often followed the line of the railroad, and that was because, you know, to manage the railroad, you needed telegraphical systems so that you could make sure that trains wouldn't run into each other. But the telegraph was also really, really useful for everybody who wanted to get news about what was happening in the rest of the world. The expanse of the telegraph system allowed the giant pool of money in London to more regularly and with greater care and expertise reach out to the four corners of the world because it could get news about stuff like, you know, crop yields and rebellions and the price of hides in Australia at an instant. It also created a new world of news, which changed the way that people thought about the places that they lived in. Because of the spread of wire services, places like the Associated Press and Reuters, people could now get news from wherever there were telegraph lines run. And these telegraph lines were run usually in the tread of empire. British people got their news about the world mainly from the British Empire, and that, for the largest part, was because that's where the telegraph lines were, were, were laid. This fact that everybody in the British Empire was getting their news from the same sources goes some way to show how the empire created its own sense of national identity and belonging. A person in the empire read imperial news. If you lived in South Africa, you would get news about people in London and about people in Australia and about people in India and about people in Canada. And that is because of the telegraph. Also, the telegraph changes the way that people identify themselves and are identified by others. The cool or, you know, maybe troubling uh, uh, fact about this is the trend in how to identify prisoners and criminals. In the 19th century, there was this very, very, very sophisticated way of marking down all of these biometric statistics about criminals, their height, their age, you know, the length of their fingers, the color of their hair, the shape of their nose, the slope of their shoulders. Everything could be boiled down into a series of criteria. Why was this done? Well, it was done because these criteria could then be sent across the telegraph lines by being sent in condensed codes. And this allowed people to identify criminals even when they fled a particular jurisdiction. Finally, the last little bit of infrastructure I want to talk about is domestic water supply. Now, I want to just remind you of the importance of energy of this. Why did water supplies increase in the 19th century? Well, water is energy hungry. To get water to a city, you need to either ship it from someplace that's higher so that gravity can, you know, make the water flow down to the, the, the places that use it, or you need to pump it so that you can get high pressures that are necessary to get into people's homes. Furthermore, to get these high pressures, you need to switch the way that you make pipes. You need to move from wood pipes to either clay or iron pipes. Obviously, clay and iron require a lot of energy to produce. So the spread of water supply in the 19th century, we need to understand it as well as a spread of cheap energy. 
um, as early as 1741, one of the first uses of the, you know, unadvanced pre-watt Newcomen steam engine was to pump water so that it could be used in London houses. Not only does water supply and this spread of water infrastructure through iron pipes and, you know, pumping systems and the diversion of streams help to get water to people, it also helps to free up people's time so that they can do other things. When you have piped water in a house, you free up a lot of women's labor. Women, of course, are the people who get the boring job of pumping water and carrying it up you know, flights of stairs, and so when you have piped water to the home, you're cutting down on female labor quite dramatically. But it also helps to promote cleanliness because people can wash in home without having to go out to get water from some sort of, you know, community pump. And because of that, it creates new kinds of consumption. Baths and showers and flush toilets. And if you remember our episode on domestic modernity, it's these kinds of conveniences that allows the space of the home to become a site where people can imagine people coming into and talking and hanging out. It is one of the reasons why women get a shot at modernity is because their houses, which they have the task of keeping clean and orderly, now have water pumped to them. Let's now shift to think about the causes of this and the consequences of this. I think that there's a way in which we can see the Industrial Revolution not as a revolution in machinery, but as a revolution that uses energy-intensive infrastructure. When you look at energy usage in particular countries over the 19th century, something big stands out. The Industrial Revolution is not associated with machines or with, you know, even greater energy use per capita, although that often rises. The big change in the Industrial Revolution comes from the relative shares of the sources of energy. The Industrial Revolution is a revolution in coal use. To the extent that a country is industrialized, that country gets more of their energy from coal. Britain, the most industrialized country, gets its energy from coal earlier than any other country, and it has more of its energy usage devoted to coal. France and Germany, which also industrialize, also end up using a lot of their energy from coal around the same times as we would say that they're industrialized. Countries that we don't think are particularly industrialized, like Italy, have a much, much, much lower share of their energy usage coming from coal. This is because of two big reasons. Coal is used to make iron, and iron is used to make steam engines and railways. Coal is also used to run railways. The Industrial Revolution, I want to argue you guys right now, is a revolution in iron and coal and railroads. The machinery part of it, that we often valorize as the big inventive push of the Industrial Revolution, is I think, a distraction. But this pushes us to look at different challenges that this new kind of infrastructure revolution poses. One of the biggest ones is that because these infrastructures are so expensive to make, they only pay off over a very, very, very long period of time. 
Furthermore, because they become so central to daily life, they become the target of political contestation. You can see this in the bad case of the disappearing profit margins of these infrastructure pro projects. Because they're so risky and so super expensive, the people who run them have an incentive to make sure that profits can be maintained. But if you get people who move into these industries, they can cut the profits really dramatically and, you know, sink the whole operation. If you have a railroad, it pays pretty well. You can set your price however high you want because people need the railroad. You need to do this because it takes a really long time to pay off all of the loans that you had to take to make the railways themselves. However, if somebody comes and builds another railway, they can cut into your profit, and then you can get into price wars, which means that no capitalist is happy, although consumers get happy. A good example of this is in the so-called Water Wars of London. In the 1810s, there was a bunch of really, really cutthroat competition between London uh, water suppliers over who got to give water where. It started when you get uh, a person who's called, quote, a renegade civil engineer named Ralph Dodd, uh, who started up a bunch of water companies. And these water companies were not super well planned, and the places which they serve were not, you know, high enough in demand to generate a profit. And so these water companies did something that water companies did not do before. They reached out into other water companies' turf. And this started a price war where all the water companies of London were trying to undercut one another in profit. And there was a lot of, you know, very, very aggressive marketing, by which I mean people went door to door trying to get people to sign up in particular, you know, water companies lines. You got work people fighting with one another when they were digging up the streets trying to put in lines. It was crazy. Um, I want to also just mention that Ralph Dodd is one of those crazy people who you just want to spend a whole day researching. In addition to his schemes building water companies and tunnels and steamships, he also tried to open a distillery. Um, and because of that, there is a gin made in London in his honor named Dodd's Gin. And if anybody can get me a bottle of that, I would be very, very happy. Uh, he died after, you know, suffering terrible burns in a steamboat accident and walking all the way to the spa that his doctor told him would, you know, cure him of his hideous burns. Anyway, all of these infrastructure projects have this problem of declining profit and this problem of collusion and cooperation and competition. And there's four ways of protecting this. The first is called cartelization. This means that all of the different competitors actually don't compete, they just divide up the spoils and make agreements with one another. This isn't just like evil, this also helps people solve really difficult coordination problems like you know, what width of track do you use to make railways? What speeds do you have? How do you communicate with people? What timetables to use? How do you make, you know, uh, time zones when railways are going very, very vast differences? Um, and it also worked with telegraph companies. Um, telegraph companies made a cartelization agreement where each company would only serve a particular kind of niche. One company served telegraph lines going from London to Scotland, another went from London to Ireland, another served only rich people who wanted private telegraph lines between their factories and their homes. 
The problem with this was that they could charge whatever prices they wanted and they started to jack up the price so that they get, get more profit. And there ended up being a national scandal where I think in 1867, the, na the telegraph lines were nationalized. This brings us to the second way of protecting profit. You don't. You get your stuff taken over by the state in nationalization projects, or you have your infrastructure built by the state in the first place. In Belgium, for instance, the first place with a pre-built railway network, the railways were built by the state. And often when you're traveling through uh, European countries, the railway lines that you're be riding on are being built and maintained by the state. This solves the problem of profit because one, you have a natural monopoly in you know, the state providing everything, and two, the state does not have the same onus to generate profit as private companies do. I've already mentioned the third solution to the problem of profit, and that is monopolies. You kill off all the competition or you build a system so big and self-contained that you don't need to worry about competition at all. This was the solution for the American railroads that uh, found their ways of protecting profit through making gigantic systems of railways and through merging with their competitors. You can see this today in the protection of profit in our leading infrastructure companies, the internet companies, Google and Facebook, each have a very, very convincing monopoly on the things that they do. Finally, the fourth way of protecting profit is probably the least tasteful to my hardcore capitalist listeners if I have not yet scared them off already. It is government regulation. By regulating the prices that infrastructure companies can charge, this allows different kinds of companies to compete against one another. Furthermore, by regulating the rules of the game, the government can solve the problems of coordination that also are solved by cartelization, monopolization, and nationalization. But you also get to retain the competition that happens when you have private companies competing against one another. So I want to just mention a, a, a procedural thing. In all of these situations, I'm talking about how technology changes the economy and culture, but I don't want at all to seem like a technological determinist. I don't want to say that you have the railways and modernity just happens. In all of this, the markets that get produced by the railways are also produced culturally. And they're also produced politically. Where the railways are built and who builds them are subject of a ton of political contestation. One of the ways that I was thinking about it as I was reading all this was that you could make a very convincing typology of who are colonizing countries, who are countries of colonies, and who are countries of the colonized by looking at who built their railroads. Colonizers built railroads in other countries. Colonies built their own railroads, and the colonized had their railroads built for them. Thanks very much to listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us with your friends, light a candle in my honor, tweet to various people about how wonderful I am, um, buy me a bottle of Dodd's Gin and send it to you know, the place where I do my reading. Um, 
light a votive candle in my honor. Um, send me, you know, poems and messages about how wonderful you think I am so that my ego uh, is not in a free fall like it is right now. Um, check out the website at historian.live. Thanks very much for listening. It means a ton. And I'll speak to you guys tomorrow. I think that we're going to be talking about the cultural elements of climate change. Thanks very much. <laughs>